The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I mean, in time of peace, I think I could have made a stand against that company, i.e. the Northwest Company. In the present, it becomes doubtful and hazardous. And, in case of an interference on the part of the British government, impossible for an individual to hold possession of a country which may become the source of wealth and comfort to many. I am sure the government will readily see the importance of having possession and the command of a river so important and extensive as the Columbia, the fountain of which cannot be far distant from that of the river Missouri. John Jacob Astor to James Monroe, February 1813. Were I on the spot and had management of affairs, I would defy them all. But as it is, everything depends on you and your friends about you. Our enterprise is grand and deserves success, and I hope in God it will meet it. If my object were merely gain of money, I should say, I think whether it is best to save what we can and abandon the place, but the very idea is like a dagger to my heart. John Jacob Astor to William Price Hunt As we've already seen in recent episodes, the War of 1812 would have wide-ranging impacts for Americans across the globe, including a group of traders who had only recently established a new fur trading post on the Columbia River in what we now know as the Pacific Northwest. Before I get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Thanks so much to Andrew Schneider and Craig Baird for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Reading the first quote from John Jacob Astor was Andrew, who is a longtime listener of the podcast and a great supporter and friend of so many in the history podcasting community. When not listening to podcasts, Andrew is a composer and musician, and his work was featured earlier this year on an album titled Pinnacle Volume 3, Contemporary Chamber Works. For more information about Andrew's work, including where you can stream or purchase Pinnacle Volume 3, check out Andrew Schneider Music, that's all one word, dot com. Our second Aster quote was read by Craig Baird, who is the host of Canadian History X, that's E-H-X. In his podcast, Craig explores the people, places, and events that make up Canadian history, and I'm always fascinated to see what topic he's going to cover next. He also has another series out called From John to Justin, which started with exploring the lives and careers of the various folks who have served as Prime Minister of Canada, but then he expanded to covering elections, the Governor's General, and provincial premiers. You can find this and all of Craig's work at his website, CanadaEHX.com, and you can search for both Canadian History X and From John to Justin anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. 
Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. It's been a bit since we talked about the wealthy fur trader and global merchant John Jacob Astor's plans to establish a route across the North American continent which would link up his interest in the Pacific trade with that crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Back in episode 4.9, we discussed the establishment of the Pacific Fur Company, a British-American joint venture, and its plans to establish a trading post on the Columbia River. Agents of the company had set sail from New York Harbor on September 8, 1810, and arrived off the coast of modern-day Oregon on March 22, 1811. Nearly two months later, on May 18th, they officially named their newly constructed settlement Astoria, after the company's founder and leader. As described by historian Alexander Emmerich, quote, Astoria was now both the field headquarters of the Pacific Fur Company and the most distant American outpost. Unfortunately, this new settlement would not have long to take root, for, as we've already discussed, in June 1812, the United States declared war on Great Britain. From his home on the East Coast, John Jacob Astor could only watch as all of his fine laid plans went up in smoke. The war meant that, quote, Astor's Atlantic trading routes and the overland routes north to where his trading posts on the Great Lakes were located were blocked. The fur trade in the eastern United States was on hold. His trade with China was likewise on hold, as it would be risky thanks to the British Navy's strong presence on the high seas to try to send ships through the Atlantic to get across to the Pacific. More than just his business concerned Astor, however. He knew that the American settlers in Astoria had no way of knowing about the war and that their British partners that they lived and worked alongside were now technically their enemies. Further, Astor knew it would only be a matter of time before the British, either through direct government action or through the British-owned Northwest Company, would send a force to take Astoria. Astor with his well-placed contacts in Washington, D.C., including, but not limited to, First Lady Dolly Madison, appealed to government officials to offer military support to secure Astoria, especially once he heard that the Northwest Company was, in fact, making moves to take the settlement. He even sent a message to former President Jefferson, begging for any support he could give. Ultimately, though, as we've seen, the Madison administration had more than enough on its plate to worry over a trading settlement on the other side of the continent. Meanwhile, the first word that war was imminent arrived in Astoria on July 15, 1812. The person who provided the update was a member of the Northwest Company, and he urged the British in Astoria to, quote, remain loyal to the British crown. This caused some to abandon the effort, while others decided to double down and keep things going. A trading ship was sent to China, while David Stewart and his nephew Robert were sent overland to report back to John Jacob Astor in New York. It would take them nearly a year, but the Stewarts arrived in New York on June 23, 1813. The papers were filled with stories of the Astoria settlement and this ambitious expedition, the first by people of European descent to cross the North American continent from west to east. Meanwhile, the Astorians received their first official word of the War of 1812 on January 15, 1813, when members of the Northwest Company arrived. These British traders were actually surprised that a British ship was not waiting off the coast, as they had been informed that a frigate was on its way. Meanwhile, 
the settlement was starting to run low on provisions, and news of the war made it unlikely that a relief ship was coming anytime soon. Still, they hung on through the year, but finally, the clock ran out on Astoria. A British frigate, the HMS Raccoon, arrived on the northwest coast on November 30th, and on December 12, 1813, the British formally took control of Astoria. As noted by Emmerich, quote, For Astor, this meant more than just losing a post. He lost the chance to establish his envisioned series of trading posts across the continent. Astoria even lost its name. Its new owners, wanting to avoid any association with the founder, renamed it St. George after the patron saint of England and protector of the British crown. As we'll see as we go along, the loss of Astoria was far from the only disappointment for the American side in 1813. Before we get to the troubles of the year, however, let's take a moment to talk about James Madison's second inauguration as President of the United States. Despite the war, social life in the nation's capital continued on apace, and indeed, outgoing Representative Samuel L. Mitchell, Democratic-Republican from New York, reported to his wife in a letter later that day that, quote, the crowd for the inauguration was so great that by 11 o'clock, the stairs of the Capitol were filled with a press of persons thriving to enter the representative's chamber. I got in after a hard scuffle. Having once entered, all was free and easy. You never saw at this place a greater throng. There was at least one person, though, who was not present at the day's activities. On December 12, 1812, Vice President-elect Elbridge Gary wrote to the President, quote, to ascertain, in case of the success of the Republican ticket for President and Vice President, and of no session of Congress, or of the Senate on the day mentioned, whether it will be requisite for the latter officer to take a journey of 500 miles in February, merely for the purpose of being inaugurated to office. The Constitution and laws of the United States, I believe, are silent on the subject, and if an administration of the oath by a federal judge in a public manner is admissible, it will save a journey out and home of a thousand miles, a species of amusement which few are fond of at an inclement season. Any indulgence incompatible with rule or the public interest is not expected, and such as is consistent with reason will undoubtedly be readily adopted. Madison replied on January 5th, asserting that, quote, should the call on you be limited to the case of the ordinary business of deciding on nominations, you have the sanction of precedent as well as the length of the journey and season of the year in yielding to your personal accommodation. The oath of office may, I believe, be taken anywhere before the judge and within the time prescribed. After stating this side of the subject, allow me to remind you that one half of the difficulty arising from the distance and the season may be avoided by proceeding southwardly instead of returning northward. Your friends in Virginia will then be the gainers and among them none more than yours, very sincerely, James Madison. Despite this offer to travel south for the winter after the inauguration, Gary opted to remain at home, and thus he became the first, but certainly not the last, vice president to not be in Washington, D.C. when he took his oath of office. On March 4, 1813, Gary was inaugurated as the fifth U.S. vice president at his home, Elmwood, in Massachusetts, and wouldn't travel south until the first session of the 14th Congress convened on May 24, 1813. Thus, it would only be James Madison who placed one hand on the Bible and raised his other hand in the House chamber of the U.S. Capitol on March 4, 1813 to take his oath of office as president for a second time 
as administered by Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall. With the oath taken, Madison, quote, kissed the Bible as he withdrew his right hand before delivering his inaugural address. President Madison used this address as a defense of the war. Quote, on the issue of the war, our state, our national sovereignty on the high seas, and the security of an important class of citizens whose occupations give the proper value to those of every other class. Not to contend for such a state is to surrender our equality with other powers on the element common to all and to violate the sacred title which every member of the society has to its protection. As the war was just in its origin and necessary and noble in its objects, we can reflect with a proud satisfaction that in carrying it on, no principle of justice or honor, no usage of civilized nations, no precept of courtesy or humanity have been infringed. The war has been waged on our part with scrupulous regard to all those obligations, and in a spirit of liberality which was never surpassed. As noted by historian Kevin Gutzman, quote, Madison, in this final great speech of his career in federal politics, focused almost exclusively on the ongoing military conflict. He said essentially nothing about what today would be called a legislative program, or even about Republican principles. The evening after the ceremony, an inaugural ball was held at Davis's Hotel, the site of the first ball in 1809, and, as described by historian Robert Allen Rutland, quote, a radiant first lady made her presence felt. The day after, the Madisons attended, quote, a festive dinner party at the home of Russian minister to the U.S., Andrei Dedashkov. Though day-to-day life would continue, and Dolly Madison would continue to work on renovation projects at the executive mansion, including having the first bathtub installed at the house, as historian Jean Edward Smith remarked, quote, Madison's inauguration provided the last festive occasion for the country in 1813. The work to prepare for what was already anticipated to be a difficult second term had begun months before the inauguration. As discussed in episode 4.23, William Eustis had been forced out as Secretary of War while Paul Hamilton had vacated the office of Secretary of the Navy. Senator William Crawford, Democratic-Republican from Georgia, had his eyes on a replacement at the War Department and suggested Acting Secretary of War James Monroe former Secretary of War and at that point General Henry Dearborn, General William Henry Harrison, New York Governor Daniel D. Tompkins, and former U.S. Minister to France John Armstrong Jr. as contenders for the office. As historian Kevin Goodsman outlines in his work The Jeffersonians, the political calculus at the time eliminated most of these contenders. Monroe, though a viable choice, especially as he was serving as acting Secretary of War, was only acceptable as permanent replacement for Eustis if a suitable replacement could be found at the State Department who wouldn't pose a threat to Monroe's chances in the 1816 presidential race. Thus, Monroe removed himself. Likewise, Dearborn declined the offer. Harrison was needed in the field. And as Gallatin told Madison, quote, No person thanks Tompkins equal to the place at such time as this. The office requires first abilities and frightens those who know best its difficulties. Crawford was considered as a possibility, but it was concluded that he would likely decline as well. Thus, 
the extensive list was down to one. On January 14, 1813, Madison wrote to John Armstrong offering him the post of Secretary of War. Now, we've talked about Armstrong for quite some time in the podcast narrative, and we've got an episode coming out on him with the Seat at the Table series. When last we talked about Armstrong in episode 4.18, he was retired to his farm along the Hudson River and was being discussed as a possible alternative presidential candidate for the Democratic Republicans to run rather than Madison in 1812. However, as we know, that candidacy went nowhere, and Madison was re-elected to a second term of office. Through friends, Armstrong was able to secure an appointment as a brigadier general in the army at the beginning of the war, and on July 20th, Armstrong was put in charge of, quote, the defense of New York Harbor. Despite being put in charge of this crucial wartime task, Armstrong still found time to write political tracts in support of Madison's re-election, as well as a 71-page book called Hints to Young Generals, which Armstrong's biographer, C. Edward Skeen, describes as follows, quote, More than a mere handbook, it comprised a great deal of useful information on strategy and tactics with rules and principles, both for offensive and defensive operations. Given his military service during the Revolutionary War and his more recent involvement with the war effort, on paper, Armstrong seemed a good choice. It also helped that he was from New York and could help to rally support for the war and the administration in that crucial state. Still, the President's most trusted advisors, Monroe and Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin, both objected to Armstrong's appointment, but ultimately promised that they would work with him. The objections apparently weren't just from administration insiders, as his confirmation by the Senate was a narrow vote, 18 to 15. There were still objections in that body to how he had settled some American claims during his time as the U.S. Minister to France. And, going back even further, it was known at this point that Armstrong had been the author of the infamous Newburgh Addresses back at the end of the Revolutionary War. Though Congress had pushed Eustace out, they did have some doubts about putting Armstrong in charge of the War Department. But they finally agreed, and everyone resigned themselves to this new cabinet member. I mean, how bad could he be, really? Famous last words, as we'll see in future episodes. But at least a new Secretary of War was now in place at the beginning of February 1813. In a contrast to what we've seen thus far with Democratic-Republican administrations, the open position at the Navy Department proved easier to fill than that of Secretary of War. And indeed, Madison's candidate for Navy was already in place when Armstrong began at war. William Jones of Philadelphia had been a merchant for years and had personally circumnavigated the globe seeking business ventures. Even better, despite the fact that he was a merchant, he showed public support for the Embargo Act. The Madison administration had previously tried to get Jones to accept a posting as charge d'affaires to Denmark and the position of Commissary General of Purchases in the War Department with no success. But when the offer came to head the Navy Department, Jones rushed to Washington and took office on January 19, 1813. Despite the problems with Paul Hamilton's previous leadership of the Navy Department, the major victories of American forces thus far in the war have been achieved on the high seas. Though Jones would not have heard the news immediately, on February 24th, the USS Hornet took out the HMS Peacock off the coast of British Guiana 
within 15 minutes. When it tried to return home, though, the Hornet would find a new problem that the United States was facing. The British had established a blockade off the East Coast. As noted by historian William S. Dudley, quote, The British blockade of the American coast during the War of 1812 was relatively thin at the outset, but increased in effectiveness in 1813. Indeed, as Jones took office in January 1813, one of the first bits of news that he received was about the arrival of more British ships off the coast to firm up the blockade. As noted in episode 4.23, the refitting of the USS Constellation had been delayed for some months after war was declared. But finally, on February 2nd, its captain ordered it into Hampton Roads to go out to sea. Unfortunately, the Constellation found seven British Royal Navy warships blocking the way out of Chesapeake Bay. Though the ship was able to get to safety, the blockade would keep that ship bottled up and out of the fray for the remainder of the conflict. Before we get caught up on events in the Northern Campaigns, let's take a moment to get caught up on the Patriot War, which we last discussed in episode 4.21. In that episode, we saw that the Spanish forces had been reinforced by a new governor, Sebastián Quindalán y Oregón, and had struck back against the Patriot forces. Also, Congress had officially voted against the resolution to occupy East Florida with military forces, despite the fact that American forces were already present in northern East Florida and occupying a swath of the Spanish colony, quote, from Amelia Island to St. Augustine. Though the Spanish forces were largely relegated to the area around St. Augustine, they were occupying a strong fortified position while the Patriot forces were stretched and coming under increasing strain, especially as, quote, what had begun as a campaign of swift American advances was turning into one of stagnation, inactivity, and boredom, without even the excitement of a skirmish or an exchange of fire to alleviate dull routine. Still, the designated leader of American efforts in the area, Georgia Governor David Bridey Mitchell, refused to order the retreat of American forces from the area, pledging to Secretary of State James Monroe that Georgia would continue to support the effort. There was one key reason Mitchell and other leaders in the area were determined to continue the Patriot War, namely that the Spanish had armed people of color to combat the Americans. Mitchell reported that the Spanish had, quote, armed every able-bodied Negro within their powers, and they have also received from Havana reinforcements of nearly two companies of black troops. It is my decided opinion that if they are allowed to remain in the province, our southern country will be in a state of insurrection. As the year went on, the Patriot authorities would start to crack down on black individuals in their zone of occupation. As described by historian Gene Allen Smith, quote, During the fall of 1812, the Patriot government on Amelia Island had condemned two free blacks to death, the father and son who had been free for more than 50 years and who had moved freely around the island, a Spanish observer remarked, were guilty of no other crime than being free blacks. The Patriots had apparently decided the time had finally come to not leave free any black or colored person who falls into their hands. By that point, black soldiers fighting for the Spanish had proven that they would match the American invaders blow for blow. On the evening of September 12, 1812, a group of 57 black soldiers and six Seminole warriors, quote, all disguised as Indians, led by militia officer Prince Whitten, 
attacked a Patriot supply line going through 12 Mile Swamp. As described by Smith, quote, Whitten had instructed his men to pick off the officers, pin down the men, and immobilize the wagons. And the first two volleys accomplished these objectives. Though the most intense fighting only lasted 25 minutes, the Patriots tried to regroup and kept fighting for two hours until finally Whitten called off the attack. This battle left the Patriot force besieging St. Augustine without enough supplies to carry on. So, quote, at 10 a.m. on September 14th, the American commander raised camp, burned his huts and shelters, and began a retreat. Though the conflict would technically continue on for a while longer, and the Georgians would continue to push for more resources to be devoted to the Patriot cause, the Battle of 12 Mile Swamp effectively ended any chance the Patriots had of victory. The political mood was not with the cause. A second debate began in Congress in December 1812 about taking possession of East Florida as well as the remainder of West Florida still nominally in Spanish control. But despite Secretary of State Monroe's efforts to push forward the bill, the bill that passed on February 12, 1813 would only, quote, confirm American claims to West Florida and eliminate it with even greater thoroughness than before any legal sanction for attacking Spanish forces in East Florida. Orders were issued on April 16th for American military forces to leave East Florida, but armed civilian bands remained for a while longer. Though the Patriots would have one more victory against Spanish forces at the Battle of Waterman's Bluff on August 8, 1813, as noted by historian James Cusick, quote, During the four months following the Battle of Waterman's Bluff, law and order along the St. Mary's River continued to break down. The Patriot government tried to approach the Madison administration one more time about the United States, quote, accepting a cession of the Alachua territory that they held and making it a dependency of the United States. But the administration rejected this on April 19, 1814. And on May 5th, the last remaining major leader of the Patriots was killed by Seminoles in an ambush, which led to the final collapse of the Patriot cause. As we'll explore in episodes in the future, this would not be the end of American ambitions in East Florida, and indeed, a leader was on the rise in the course of the War of 1812 who would have a major impact in the continuous campaign which would ultimately bring Florida into the United States. But we'll get to Andrew Jackson soon enough. Cusick explains the reason why efforts would continue to end Spanish control of the peninsula in the southeast in the following summation of this conflict in 1812-1814. Quote, The Patriot War must be regarded as intrinsically tied to Southern attitudes about race and slavery. Southerners regarded Spanish policies in Florida as antithetical to the supremacy of master over slave. We'll talk more in upcoming episodes about the Creek War, but slavery would also be a motivating factor in that concurrent conflict in the Southeast. For now, though, let's finish up with a quick look at what was happening in the Northern arenas around the time of Madison's second inauguration. When last we talked about him in episode 4.21, our old friend General James Wilkinson had taken command of troops in New Orleans. As noted by Kevin Goodsman, quote, the general, i.e. Wilkinson, had grown to be so disliked there that his continued presence in Louisiana would mean that that state's senators would join the opposition in the next session of Congress, which would shift party control of the Senate into the hands of the Federalists. 
Thus, on March 10th, Wilkinson was sent orders to join General Henry Dearborn's command in the north. Wilkinson, along with William Henry Harrison, Wade Hampton, and Morgan Lewis, was also named as a major general as Congress had authorized 19 new infantry regiments and one regiment of rangers to expand the army. With this expanded force, it was hoped that a push could be made in Lower Canada to take control of Lake Ontario. Secretary Armstrong's orders to General Dearborn were to coordinate with Commodore Isaac Chauncey at Sackett's Harbor and attack the main British naval base at Kingston to capture or destroy the British ships there. As we'll see, things wouldn't go quite according to plan, but that will have to wait until next time, for our time together is drawn to a close. I want to thank Craig Baird of Canadian History X and Andrew Snyder again for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Be sure to check out Andrew's work at andrewsnydermusic.com and Craig's work at canadaehx.com or by searching for Craig's podcast, Canadian History X, and From John to Justin, anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Special thanks also to the patrons of the podcast, Matthew C., Jeremy, Michelle G., Ike, Joshua, Matthew N., Terrell, Eric, Howard, Michael, Michelle, and Scott. Their financial support helps to offset the cost of podcasting, including hosting fees, editing, equipment, and research resources. If you would like to join them as a patron of the podcast, just go to patreon.com presidencies and sign up. Thanks also to Christian of Your Podcast Pal, whose audio editing assistance helps me to get Madison Presidency episodes out sooner rather than later, while still ensuring a great audio quality for all of you. If you'd like to get his assistance with your podcast editing, check out his website at yourpodcastpal.com. Special thanks also to the folks at the Colonial Music Institute at George Washington's Mount Vernon, who graciously allowed us the use of clips from Hull's Victory, as performed by David and Ginger Hildebrand, for our intro and outro music. You can find out more about the great work that the Colonial Music Institute is doing to research and share information about early American music and dance by going to mountvernon.org and typing in Colonial Music Institute in the search field. Links to the websites for all these folks, as well as sources used for this episode, past episodes of the podcast, links to more information about all the U.S. presidents, and much more can be found at the website, which is presidenciespodcast.com. If you'd like to reach out to me, please feel free to send me an email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com. I'm also available on social media. I'm on Mastodon, Post, Blue Sky, and Facebook as Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Threads at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. Last, but certainly not least, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. 
In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.